So the passage I'm going to read this morning is a hard passage. It's a heavy passage. So I'm just going to start with it. (laughs) Then I want us to lean into it. If this is a passage that makes you lean out, would you do the southeast thing with me and would you lean in? Would you lean into it? Because I feel like as we read this, we're going to discover some things. I know I did. Every time that I preach, what I try to do is I try to look at a passage and I try to see what causes me to lean away from that passage, what is pushing me away, and then I lean back right into that. And I discover that God has something to teach me in that reality. So I ask you this morning as I read this, when you start to feel a little tension, which you will, lean into it, and let's discover some things together and see where this leads us to. Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Any tension in that one? Anything that makes you kind of sit back and go, ooh. Anybody stop and say, does that have to apply? That's Old Testament, right? What's going on here? This is written by a prophet. His name is Malachi, and prophets weren't rich. Malachi had nothing to gain by saying the words that we read here. But I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine hearing this live the first time. Uh, Imagine Malachi, the first time that he looks out among the people of Israel, and he says these words out loud to them. What kind of courage do you think it took to stand up to call out his people as prophets were called to do? The, The prophets, their responsibility was to look at their community And they were to say to their community, look, this is what God is calling us to. This is the amazing reality in front of us. See, sometimes, sometimes when you hear the word prophet, all you think about is the future reality. And you think that they're simply just telling people what's about to happen. But that's not really what a prophet was supposed to do. A prophet's responsibility was to imagine what was possible if the community followed God to what was possible. Their responsibility was to say, this is the future that God wants for every single one of us. This is what he wants for you. This is what he wants for us. And he's looking and he says, y'all, right? I love this term, y'all. We need to look forward to what God has for us here. If we would stop doing whatever we're doing that is pulling us away from the future that God is calling us to, if we would stop that and we would look to the future and we would set our course on that path, right? So he's course correcting. He's saying you're headed this way. This path is going this direction. That's not the plan that God has for us as a people. It's not a plan he has for you. He says that future is over there. And he says course correct. Get on the right path. And let's see what God has for us together. A prophet was this kind of person who he was willing just to speak it out, just to say the hard stuff, to make people stop and go, man, that's painful, that hurts. Why why do you have to bring up old stuff, man? 
Why you got to bring up that kind of thing? Why you got to get in my business, right? And that was a prophet's responsibility. So Malachi stands up and he looks at these people and he says, listen, I'm about to throw some course correction down. I sort of wondered, did anybody, was it Princess Bridish? Did somebody kind of go, boo, you know, right? Because they had enough of it. You know, and everybody kind of look around and wonder, what's that, per- you know, what's the deal? But he says, and here's what he's saying. He's saying, come on, lean in. Listen on. Listen with me. Listen what's going to happen here. It took a lot of guts to say these words. In fact, guys, I'll be honest with you. It took a lot of guts to read them this morning. When I was preparing our sermon series, I said, we're going to do week one. We're going to do week two. Uh, week three, we'll do something a little different. And this passage kept coming back, and some people brought it up. Are you going to read that one that, you know, that people have preached on that's really hard and I was like, you know, I think we're going to stick in this world. And then all this week, it kept coming back and coming back. And I said, God, I don't want to preach that. That's not a fun one. I don't know what's going on here. It's kind of painful. And it just kept coming back and coming back. And I said, okay, if Malachi had the guts to say it, I'm going to have the guts to read it. I'm going to have the guts to explore it. I'm going to have the guts to see what it means for my life. Because if it hits me in my life, then I know it's going to hit us in our life. The reason he said it was because the people in Israel had become self-centered. They became inward-focused. And over again and over again, this was the problem for the people of Israel. God tries to push them in one direction, right? (laughs) To live outward-focused lives. But they continued over and over again to only see themselves. This is the story of the Old Testament. That God says you are going to be a blessing to this world. This is the path that I have set for you. And it is an incredible path. If you would follow me on this path, I want to show you what is possible. And over and over and over again, they had an opportunity. Every generation, every person hit this place where they could decide to follow God to bless the world. Or they could just shove off in a different direction. They could see what God had for their lives, or they could get inward focused on themselves. Every generation, every story we find, over and over and over again, this is the story of the Israelite people, that rather than bless the world with the resources that God had so graciously given them, rather than see themselves for the vision God had given their lives, they lost focus, and they focused on themselves. As I wrote those words in my notes this week, it started to sound incredibly familiar because that's my story. It's my story because at certain times in my life, God has looked and said, listen, I want you to follow me in this path. And I've said, I'm going to go ahead and resist that. I'd like to go my own direction for a little while. And then I felt like there was this voice saying, I told you not to go that way. Follow me. Follow me where you need to go. And I'd course correct and I'd get back on and I'd see the amazing things that God had. I look going into college and saying, no, you know what? I got my own plans. And then God found some ways to help me course correct. I looked at it in ministry as I started getting into church work and what I wanted to do. And I thought, man, this is what I want to do, God care if it's your church. Man, I got some plans here. Isn't that conceited? You can call me out. That's fine. But I was. And I had to have these places in life where he course corrected it. 
See, this was the challenge for the people of Malachi. And apparently one that they had failed. Their failure in putting themselves first, of choosing their own agenda above God's, led to what he says here. Now, this is the painful part, a curse. Now, listen to this. I want you to hear this because this, this is the hard part of this. But there's something amazing about this. If you look closely at this, here's the thing. This curse, this was brought on themselves. It doesn't say in the passage at all that God put them under a curse. Do you see that? See, some people read this and they say, well, see, God punishes them. God does something. God puts them under a curse because of something they did. No, that's not at all what it says. It, it, it doesn't say anything that God did that. It just says they are under a curse. And this really isn't hard for us to understand if we lean into this a little bit. I mean, isn't that what living for yourself does? See, here, here's, how I, here's how I wrote this. I said, at first it feels good, right? To go out on your own, to do whatever you want, to be self-centered, right? That feels pretty good at first. But here's what I realized. I've never heard someone say, you know, I wish I had lived a more selfish life. Have you ever been to a funeral? At the funeral, somebody stood up and said, guys, I want to tell you why this person lived such an exemplary life. Because they were so selfish. And everybody said, you know what? He's right. I just wish that I had lived like him too. Because when I get to the end of my days, I wish people would stand up at my funeral and say, you know what he was? He was a selfish person. I don't think anybody has ever said that, right? But people say, I wish I hadn't been so selfish. That we have moments in life where we stop and say, I wish I hadn't put the focus on myself. That's hard to imagine end of life for me. But I experience this all the time with my kids. Daddy, I, I want to play with you. Can we go outside? Will you play with me? No, Daddy's got some things going on I want to take care of. I got my own thing. Go outside. Take care of yourself. Go play by yourselves. And then an hour later, I look and say, was it really that important? Was what my stuff was going on, was it really that important? And then I regret it. And I think, I wish I hadn't been so selfish. This is what's going on with these people. They can't get out of their own selfish rut, and we can't get out of our own selfish ruts. See, listen to this. Living a me-first life, where I think I own everything, where everything is my decision, where it's my path, here's what it looked like for me. It meant every night I worried about my own story instead of trusting God with it. When it came to money, I worried every night about how much I would have, would I make enough. It meant that my wife and I argued over things because we weren't on the same page, because we were focused on ourselves. I had this fear of losing everything because I wasn't trusting God to provide, right? And here's what it is. It's a pretty crappy existence. That, that's how we take the blessing that God has given us and turn it into a curse. Because when we make it all about us, it's not a fun place to be. Selfishness is a place of worry. It's a place of greed. It's a place of looking at everybody else thinking, what could they take from me, not what can I give? And so they put themselves in this position. They've kind of cursed themselves with living this reality that none of us want to live. Malachi is just simply saying, listen, you put yourselves on this path, he says, and you need to get back on it. You set yourselves on a path of this existence that isn't working. 
But look, there's a future. There's a way that we can go. Now, we've talked a couple weeks about the principle of tithing that he talks about here. It's the principle in these verses that Malachi says that people gave up. That principle is summed up in these verses written hundreds of years prior to the book of Malachi in Leviticus. Listen to this. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And the word there that we translate tithe is just simply the phrase 10%. That's literally what it is, a 10% of everything. The Israelites would give 10% of whatever they produced or earned, and they would keep the remaining 90%. Here's why, and I, I wrote this down, I'm being very specific in my notes today because I want to make sure we're clear about this. They knew that everything belonged to God. They knew that everything belonged to God. So the idea was this. This principle was a guardrail to keep their focus on God and what God wanted for their lives. See, rather than face the curse of me first living, tithing was guiding them to the blessing of God first living. Do you hear that? This is a guardrail that protected them. Rather than having the curse of me first living, he said there's a principle. And these people began to believe in this principle of living this out of God first living. It's absolutely powerful. Now, what we did was we decided we're going to take this serious here at Southeast. So over the past couple of weeks, we have talked about the 730-90 challenge. If you haven't received one of these, they're available on the table. They're on our website. They've been on Facebook. We sent out an email. If you didn't receive one, you're trying to not look at it. That's what I've decided. This has been available in every possible way for you to get to it. If you didn't get it, that's fine. If it's your first time here, please don't think I'm telling you you need to tithe. You're our guest. If you don't follow Jesus... Please understand that I'm not telling you to tithe, but if you are a member of this church and you follow Jesus, I have a responsibility to tell you, you need to be living some God-first living. You need to stop dating Jesus and you need to actually, I don't know, commit. Right? Put a ring on it. Who said, who said that? That was awesome. <laughs> so these are available over here. Here's, I'm going to make this quick to explain this. Make sure you grab one of these. This is simple. The tithe challenge is this. It says, what would it look like in your life if you trusted God with 10% of your income for seven days? Just a week. Today is Tithe Demonstration Sunday. We're asking everybody who is in a relationship with Jesus, who calls Southeast Church home to say, I'm going to commit a week's income. A week's income. Wow, that's a lot. See, 10%, which isn't a whole lot. I'm going to commit 10%. To the vision that God has for my life. And I'm going to test him in that. I'm going to trust him in that for a week. And then I want people to say, listen, listen. You're going to look at your life and say, something happened. Something happened here. Something happens when I change my perspective. And I want to challenge you to go beyond that. Now, you, you might take the exit ramp and you may say, you know what, Ryan? Seven days was enough. Okay? I, I'm not sure I'm at. Seven days was enough for me. That's fine. Some of you will say, I want to try this a little more. I want you to take 30 days. What would it look like to trust God in your finances? And then what would it look to trust him for 90 days? Or what would it look like to step into that? To say, you know, I'm scared of this. Okay, fine. 
Do two, three, four, five percent. Pick a percentage, though. Something you have to look at what you actually have, what God has given you, and decide, I'm going to do this for seven days. I'm going to trust a little more, and I'm going to pick that up for 30 days. And at the end of it, I'm going to say, oh, you know what? I'm going to step all the way. At the end of this, I'm going to step into trusting and see what that does. But here's what I want to tell us this morning. This guardrail that we're challenging ourselves to participate in wasn't built on the question of whether they mattered to God. It was built on the question of whether God mattered to them. And the reason they mattered to God, why it was important that God mattered to them, was because this covenantal relationship was built on the vision of sharing God's love with the world. And this is the same for you and me. Listen to this passage again. I want you to hear this. Tithing is a guardrail, okay? Tithing is a guardrail on the road to the destination. It isn't the destination. Tithing is a guardrail that helps us stay in this covenantal relationship with God, trusting Him and believing that He's going to work through us. Listen to the end of this. Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse. That there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. And the key of this is there's not enough room to store it. He's not saying pour out enough blessing so that I can just keep giving to you and giving to you and giving to you and giving to you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I'm going to pour out so much blessing you can't even hold on to it. That I'm going to give to your life. And he's not talking about money here. He's not talking about that he's going to make you rich. He's not talking he's going to make you wealthy. He's talking about the word blessing, which is he is going to pour into your life in such a way that you pour out the things of heaven on this world. Grace and mercy and forgiveness and love that you recognize that your relationship is built on those things in a trust relationship with God, that he's given you grace and mercy and love and forgiveness, and you say, I can't hold on to that all myself. I'm going to share it with the world. He's saying, you can't hold on to it. I'm going to bless you with my love so much, so much that you're overflowing into this world. To experience the wave of blessing God wanted to pour out through his people, they had to commit to God first living. The interdependence of their relationship with God and their relationship or world around them was echoed by Jesus 400 years later. When a man seeking to understand the way of Jesus asked Jesus a question about direction, he said, of all the commandments, Jesus, which one is the most important? Of all the commandments, and listen, listen, Jesus didn't say tithing, because he knew it was a guardrail. He knew it was a guardrail to this first commandment that he says. Listen to what he says. The phrase here, now listen, the phrase here alluded to direction. The guy is saying, where do I go? How do I get there? If that's the destination, how do I get there? What does it look like? Jesus says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one. There is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings in sacrifices. He says, I get it. This stuff matters. This matters because I need these guardrails in my life. I need to think about my life in terms of what am I sacrificing towards God so that I can continue on the path of loving God and loving others, of loving God and loving others. He says, this is the greatest commandment, but to get that straight, you've got to have these guardrails in place. 
These two things, loving God and loving others, are not independent of each other. See, this is cool. They are interdependent. He says, what is the greatest commandment? He gives them two, and he says they're part of one. Love God and love others. This is the heartbeat of our heavenly Father. John 3, 16 through 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I bet you've heard this one before. And then it goes on, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. You have been saved. You have been rescued. You have been redeemed. If you have made a choice to follow Jesus, he has given you new life and new purpose. He saved you, and I love this, guys, from something, to something, and for something. Say that with me. You have been saved from something, to something, and for something. He came so you could grasp onto eternal life and share that reality and love with the world. Think about that. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? If you're in this space and you have chosen to follow Jesus and that doesn't get you excited, I have no idea what else to do for you. I literally have nothing else I can tell you except the reality is that he wants you to grasp eternal life and share that with the world. That's awesome. I mean, literally, why do we not get up and dance like crazy about that? That is an incredible reality, one that we can't miss, one that we can't take a different path from, one that we look and he says, that's your future, church. That's your future right there. And you've chosen another path. He says, come back on. He says, there's no condemnation in it. You've been saved to it. Now get back on. Love God. Love others. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. When we follow Jesus, and I'm going I'm to give you an illustration here. There's some pictures. When we follow Jesus, Tim, get that first circle up there with Jesus in the middle of this. Listen. Now put Jesus in it. There you go. When we... <laughs> When we follow Jesus, that's our first circle, to follow Jesus, to love God. When we explore the way of our Savior, we discover the beautiful picture of loving God and loving others. We discover the community of the church. Tim, put that one up. Fellow travelers on the way. And together we discover the life that God has given us cannot be contained, right? He's going to pour into us so much that we can't help but pour out onto the people around us, which is our world. This is the heartbeat of God. We are southeast. We have always been southeast. Listen to this. We are exploring the way of Jesus as we learn to love God, give me the arrow, and love others and bring life to our community. Let me say it again. We are exploring the way of Jesus as we learn to love God, love others, and bring life to our community. We lean into God-first living, and we experience God-first vision. You need to lean into God-first living to experience God-first vision. You need to love God with your whole heart and experience what it looks like to love others. This is how I wrote it, and I want to close with this. Some of us need to embrace Jesus 
as he extends his love beyond this circle. Others of us need to embrace the community of fellow travelers and creating space for others to join. As we learn to love God and love others, we will experience the heartbeat of a church or the community going beyond the circle and sharing God's love with the world. So here's what I'm telling you. For some of you, you need to break into this reality of the church. You need to embrace fellow travelers in the journey and be authentic and real with them. Let them speak into your life and help you follow Jesus. For some of us, you need to continue on that journey and give your life to Jesus to say, I'm done following my own path. I am going to follow the way of the one who brings life. And for some of others, you need to get out of Jesus and me. You've been living in Jesus and me forever, and you've been afraid to commit to community. Faith doesn't last in Jesus and me. Faith has always been a thing about community. There are more togethers in the New Testament than any other word. We are a community together. you got to get out of Jesus and me into community, and then you will experience that pushes you out into the world. Hear me on this. Love God brings us in to a relationship with Jesus, and love others pushes us back out. We get into this relationship with Jesus, and we love others, and he pours into us so much that he pours us back out, and it is like a massive heartbeat. That is where life is found in the church. That is where life is found in your life, in this relationship with God, loving God with everything you've got, living a God-first life, and he pours you out into this world, and that pours you back into loving God, loving God, loving others, loving God, loving others. That is the power of God-first living that leads us to God-first vision. I have to stop because I've gone on way too long this morning, and we have a couple pieces we need to hit that are so important about that God-first living, so let's pray. Father, Thank you for calling us into community, for calling us into this place, God, where we learn to love God and love others. God, where we pour our lives into you, our whole lives, the things in our hands, the things that we believe in ourselves, the the, the security, the satisfaction that we think that we can somehow hold on to, God. We drop those things, and we come to you with open hands. This morning, we take our hands, and we drop those things in our lives that we've been holding on to. God, and we open up. We say, Father, pour into our lives so that we can pour out into this world your love and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. God, the kind of things that redefine the word church for this world. God, a church for the community. It's your name that we pray. Amen.